the range of potential outcomes over the next one, three, five, ten years uh, for Tesla are still incredibly wide. The earnings reports that company produce, that is signal. The stock price, commentary on CNBC, uh, thing, tweets, that is noise. The unfortunate thing is the ratio of signal to noise has just gotten worse. As investors, many of us are constantly researching as much as we can about the company and the stock. We need to better understand whether the fundamentals of the business we're interested in is solid with a very bright future or not. If it is, we still need to be aware and prepare for the wild gyrations of the stock market and economy. For us Tesla investors, these swings can be even much more pronounced. We're in for a treat today as we get to speak with Brian Feroldi. In addition to having Brian explain his mission to demystify finance, as an investor in Tesla himself, we'll also have him help us with Tesla's valuation. Brian is a financial educator, YouTuber, and author who has written over 3,000 articles on stocks, investing, and personal finance. Last year, Brian published his best-selling book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? If you're an investor or looking to learn how to invest, you know, who among us would consider ourselves experts? I highly, highly recommend following Brian on Twitter and YouTube. We will be learning some of his lessons today. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Herbert, for the great introduction. It's great to be here. I'm glad that you're here because you definitely will help me get brighter. Thank you, Brian. Okay, so for the very first question, I'm very excited because you are a an investor in Tesla. It is one of your top holdings. So why don't we get started there before you teach us some of your investing philosophies. We have so many beautiful charts and tables to show folks, but let's start there. What got you excited about Tesla? So when uh, when Tesla first came public, I was a complete skeptic uh, in it. Uh, I wanted nothing to do with investing in the auto industry. I know that the auto industry historically has been one that's destroyed a lot of investor uh, capital. I thought the idea of electric cars were cool, but the company did not had not established product market fit, uh, to my opinion. I had never heard of Elon Musk um, at, at the time. So I do remember uh, seeing some interviews on CNN. NBC and hearing that it was coming public, but not interested in the company at all uh, at the IPO. Uh, I was a subscriber in uh, when it came public uh, to a publication called The Motley Fool, and one of their uh, subscription products is that uh, invest in high-growth companies uh, called Rubrikers. At the time, um, the uh, the manager of that um, a newsletter, David Gardner, recommended to his subscribers, including me, that they should buy uh, Tesla. Um, I dismissed the report outright. I didn't. I, I was like, nope, this is the dumbest recommendation uh, that I've ever seen. Why would you invest in this electric car uh, company? They're, the, the thing that makes them different is they don't have exhaust out the back. I just, I just didn't believe it. In fact, the, I saw him a few months later in person, and I was like, I can't, I can't believe you recommended that people buy Tesla. Thousands of people uh, buy, buy Tesla. Now, over time, as Tesla became more in, in the market and I learned more about it and I started to see Model S's on the road, I my mindset slowly shifted and I thought, you know what? Maybe there is something. Maybe, maybe there is something uh, here. Uh, so I first bought shares of Tesla in 20, 2012. Um, and then through 2013 and 2014, those were big years uh, for Tesla, uh, the, the company. They started to uh, sell more Model S's. Model S was named Car of the of the Year. 
uh, revenue really started to grow, gross profit uh, started to grow, and the stock like forexed um, in in a pretty short uh, in a pretty short period of time. Um, and I view when that happens, a lot of people get scared by by that happening. I've actually learned that that's actually a really good sign. If you see a stock that has dramatically beaten the market in a short period of time, that tends to be a good indication that the business is doing something well and that the Wall Street is recognizing uh, that. Now, if you're a long-term Tesla shareholder like I am, uh, you probably remember the period between 2014 and 2020 when the stock essentially did nothing, <laughs> nothing uh, but go but go down. Uh, that was a very frustrating period uh, for shareholders like me because it seemed like the quarterly conference calls went really well. Revenue was up. The company was winning accolades. It had launched uh, the model, uh, the model uh, X. It had launched the model uh, three. Um, production was ramping. Like everything from the business perspective was was going in in the right direction. Uh, there were plenty of hiccups along the way. Don't get me wrong, but largely the the zoomed out picture was largely on track. And yet the stock essentially went sideways and downward for about six years. For about six years uh, straight. Now, all of that patience uh, proved to be a coiled spring because I think it was in 2020 that the stock essentially at least 15 bagged uh, over the course of that year or something like that just went bananas. Uh, and the more more recent returns have been, um, you know, all, all, over the, all over the map. Uh, but I was initially a big skeptic uh, of Tesla, and it's just been slowly watching that company execute and learning more about the way Musk operates uh, that I've become a big fan of Tesla. I actually uh, bought a Tesla. Uh, myself, I bought a Model Y uh, in twenty in twenty twenty. It's my favorite thing I've ever purchased uh, for myself, and it remains. Uh, it's grown to become my largest holding, and remains so today. Wonderful. Thank you for that story because I, I felt the pain. I was with you along the way. I invested in twenty twelve as well, and I had to explain to my family. Yeah. Every year, Tesla's great. Tesla's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for the stock. Uh, but, the stock's not great for now. <laughs> yeah. Well, except the, you know, the only thing I had with me is I was an investor in Apple as well, and I had the same thing. And they saw that uh, one day we're thinking I should sell, you know, my wife and all that. And then she saw that, you know, okay, business is more important than stock gyration. One of the things that you teach, I'm a big fan of yours, by the way. I've been following you for years, and I share all of your uh, beautiful you know, you call it demystifying finance. You you kind of create this simplistic chart with a very powerful message, uh, image, and I share it with my daughters all the time. And and it, you know, this is something that's missing. So, in regard to Tesla, let's get back there. Which is, I, I saw this one you said was worth for us to share right away because you said this fits perfectly with Tesla. Go ahead and explain what uh, what the thinking here is. If you're a new investor in the market, the market can be extremely confusing uh, because the stock and what the stock is doing on any given day and what the business is doing on any given day are almost completely d detached from uh, each other. There's been no better example of that over the last uh, 10 plus years than than Tesla. Um, as I as I just stated, from essentially the company's IPO through about 2014, the stock largely went up. A lot. Now the business was succeeding, uh, but the stock didn't probably deserve to go up as much as it went up during that time period. So I think the market had a similar reaction uh, to Tesla as I did 
when it IPO'd, people were highly skeptical about it. I know I was. Slowly, the company won over converts, uh, and the company developed a, a very strong uh, following, especially amongst the retail investor community, and that caused the, the price to just absolutely uh, uh, skyrocket. And then over the next uh, six years, um, the price became so far ahead of the fundamentals of, of the business that while the business continued to approve, uh, the stock essentially went down slash sideways. So it was a frustrating six-year uh, holding period uh, for investors. That's 24 quarters, 24 quarters of listening to conference calls, studying the company, uh, con confirming the thesis is on track, and you, the investor, have made essentially $0 for all of that effort uh, and anguish that you go on. However, uh, if you follow what that, that picture uh, shows and you just focused on the business and you ignored and you ignored the stock um, for, for a second, uh, you learned that it was just that the business fundamentals were catching up uh, to the stock. And I would argue in about 2018, especially in 2019, the business fundamentals were ahead, well ahead, of where the stock price uh, was. And that's why we saw such a strong uh, a jump in the stock price in 2020 as the business fundamentals, uh, as a stock caught up uh, to the business fun fundamentals. But this is something that happens to essentially every uh, great company uh, out there. Uh, over the short term, there can be a wide dispersion between what the business is doing and what the stock is doing. That is just the nature of the stock market works. Uh, Benjamin Graham has the best quote ever related to this phenomenon. He says, in the short run, the, biz, uh, the stock market is a voting machine. In the long run, the business is a weighing machine. And that graphic is just a reminder to myself, uh, mostly, focus on the business, the weighing machine part of that. Uh, if the business succeeds, eventually the stock will too. Yeah, exactly. So I appreciate that. So yeah, <laughs> this Tesla to stock. I think you, one of the things that you explained too, which is very important for us to remember, is that the companies go through different stages. And at the beginning, of course, they were startup and high. Like you said, it's a car manufacturer. Many cars uh, manufacturers, auto industry die. They don't succeed. And then so there was a lot of the, uh, skepticism, like you said, some low margins, big factories. And then in 2018, 19, they proved that they weren't going to die because they were about to. And then it takes off. And then, so there's a different stage where the company is. Today, as we'll talk about, Tesla is no longer a startup. There's no concern for them to go out of business anymore. They're just basically at that inflection curve. So when you look at the business fundamentals for Tesla, it is a very different situation those first early years, but it's less risk at this point. Um, so that was fantastic. Thank you for that. The other quote I wanted to bring up right away, and I don't know if it fits exactly here, is this, uh, this quote from Charlie Munger that you had and you shared and it says here some of the worst business decisions i've seen came from came with detailed analysis <laughs> the higher math was false precision they do that in business schools because they've got to do something <laughs> so it's funny that uh, here's one of the best investors him and buffett and he's basically saying that uh, sometimes being too specific in your financial analysis and so forth what's your opinion on that uh, yes, uh, I, I largely agree with with Munger on that. Now, va valuation is one of the trickiest parts uh, of investing. It, it can be very challenging uh, to value stable businesses, and Tesla Tesla has been anything but a stable business, at least at least historically. As you pointed out, it's become a much more mature, reliable, stable, predictable business now than it was, say, three or five years ago. But I would argue that Tesla is probably one of the hardest companies 
in the history of, of business uh, to, to, to value. Uh, the range of potential outcomes over the next one, three, five, ten years uh, for Tesla are still incredibly, uh, incredibly wide. That is in part due to um, the, the nature of having uh, the company so controlled and so aligned to Elon Musk's uh, uh, personality. But uh, you know, you look forward five years. I, I could easily see a Tesla becoming the number one car manufacturer in the earth, having a very dominant market share. I could see it generating uh, billions of dollars in free cash flow through uh, through FSD to say nothing of the long-term potentials of projects like, like Optimus out there. Or I can also see Elon Musk having a nervous uh, breakdown and something uh, going terribly wrong uh, at, at the company and there being uh, major cultural issues. I could see other automakers uh, potentially uh, catching up. And if FSD uh, doesn't work out, if it never works the way that uh, Musk says it does, uh, that could that could destroy a whole bunch of value uh, for investors today. So even today, as big and mature and relatively predictable as te Tesla has come, its future is still a big question mark. Okay. I want to do a deep dive in Tesla and your valuation of Tesla, how you see it. Let's do that a little bit later. I want to dive right in first into just investing in general. This is your bread and butter. You're very, very good with this, with this in, in, information. So let's start with the valuation and then we'll go into the market and how you view that and then specific recommendations you have. And then we'll come back and we're going to deep dive deep on everything we just learned and how it applies to Tesla. So this table here that you shared is something that I absolutely love. And you're basically reminding people that you don't, there's not one valuation method that should be used. In fact, it depends on where the company is. If they're in a startup, you, you don't use the, the PE ratios and so forth. You should be using um, this, this uh, total addressable market, kind of the only thing, because they haven't sold anything. That's the green. If it's in, starting to grow and starting to make money, then you can start adding price to sales, but you still don't do anything like a discount cash flow or this a reverse discounted cash flow because it's something that's on. Explain this table, but it's fantastic. I just absolutely love this. And it tells you, depending on what stage a company is, this is the metrics. The ones in green is the one you should follow. Yeah, this is something that I've learned the 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 hard way. Uh, if you study uh, investing and you study uh, valuation, uh, you hear absolute statements out there from some investors that say a business is worth the discounted cash flow, the uh, the present value of um, all of its future uh, cash flows in perpetuity, aka them saying that the discounted cash flow model is the ultimate valuation tool and it should be applied to all companies um, at all time. Uh, that certainly makes logical uh, sense to me, at least from an academic uh, perspective, but what was never explained to me was that businesses go through, or most businesses go through, uh, of different phases uh, in, in their life. Uh, as you point out, um, when a company is in the startup phase, uh, as this chart shows, it is very common for those companies, especially ones that go on to be publicly traded, uh, for them to be losing money. They're losing money on purpose. Uh, they don't wish to be losing money, but they need to reinvest back into themselves so aggressively uh, that they are spending more money than they're taking in. Tesla followed this chart uh, pretty much uh, to the T, and it makes sense. Building a car factory, uh, to say nothing of designing of the car factory itself, uh, costs a tremendous amount of money. Even today, as Tesla continues to build out um, their, their gigafactories and produce cars all over the world, that takes a tremendous billions of dollars in upfront inv investment uh, to get off uh, the ground. 
That means the company has to put out a lot of capital uh, before they can even start generating um, revenue uh, from the uh, from the factories uh, that that they're building. So when a company is in that reinvestment mode, when they're when they're spending more money that, than they're pulling in, uh, to me, I think a discounted cash flow model is essentially useless uh, to you in, in that stage because it requires you to make all kinds of wild assumptions about uh, the the future uh, of the company that 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 are highly unlikely. Uh, to be to be accurate. So when a company is in the startup phase or when it's in the early stages of its growth, I think the only metrics that you can use to value it are really total addressable market analysis, which is when you take a look at the total revenue opportunity available to the company. You make some assumptions about how much market share could it get, what could its profit margin uh, look like, et cetera, and that's how you you value the company. It's very squishy. There's a lot of a, there's still a lot of assumptions built in, but I think that that's that's a more useful analysis because it's like back of the napkin analysis than using a highly detailed tool like a discounted cash. Cash flow. Now, as the company grows and matures over time, eventually the company reaches that uh, that critical third phase, the self-funding phase. Tesla really got to that point in about 2020. That was the point when the company was completely self-funding. It no longer needed to rely on outside sources of capital uh, to grow itself. It didn't have to tap the debt markets. It didn't have to tap the equity markets. It was generating enough cash internally uh, to pay for its future uh, development. Once a company gets to that phase, then you can start to layer in different types of valuation multiples to figure out what you're paying uh, for the business. Uh, I, I like to use uh, the price to sales or ratio, uh, the price to gross profit ratio, the price to uh, EBT or price to operating income. Uh, in that in that phase, though, it's very common for companies to not not be optimized for earnings. They might not be losing money, but they are not optimized for profit yet. Because they're not optimized for profit yet, you can't use the price to earnings uh, ratio. When a company just crosses over into break even and they're making a little bit of money, it's very common for people to be like, can't buy this stock, the PE ratio is 1,000 or it's 500, right? Uh, it's way too, too overvalued. Now, the stock might be overvalued, but I would argue that the P-E ratio doesn't work yet. The P-E ratio doesn't work until a company gets into stage five. When they are fully optimized for earnings, that's when the P-E ratio uh, becomes useful. So I think that this chart is a very helpful guideline that investors can use to figure out which valuation metric should be used depending on which phase the company is in. Hey there, thank you for joining me. If you can, please consider supporting this channel so I can keep it going. It's a lot of work arranging all these amazing interviews. One of the easiest ways is just to click that join button and become a member of the channel. Thank you very much. Let's get brighter. Yeah, and you've already said that Tesla is in number four, and you can either just decide if it's going to be in the early stage of number four or higher stage of number four. If you look at it as far as an auto business, it's going to be in the odd higher area. But I would argue with you that Tesla is is very much a, um, it's like multiple businesses. Mm -hmm. And so you can say the auto business number four, but the robot business is number one. And mm -hmm. the energy business is in the number three now. It's like self-funding at this point, you know? And so you overlay these things. And that's why when you look at the stock price, and I know we're going to go into this a little bit, if you just look at it from the auto business, then you're going to go, the PE is high, the price of sales is high, these things are high. But if you then go, well, 
these things are not they're not they're not research and development anymore these other businesses are moving along and i know you've said full self-driving is a wild card that things is going to you know why you're still invested you you're not going to sell thank you for doing that let's let's go into that a little closer um i love that so tell me a little bit more about your philosophy of investing um just in general i saw this one thing that you did here which is um investment advice add to winners journal read widely save more study great investors trade less <laughs> love it use checklists wait longer i mean yeah this is boring but so you are a buy and hold you're a long-term investor um and then you know what's your portfolio look like you said that tesla is your top holding but are you also kind of like a, a spread out how many stocks do you buy into Yep. So I own about 50 stocks uh, myself. Um, I am a huge fan of index funds. I think that index funds are the right choice for 99% of investors that are out there. You should just buy an index fund and call it a day. But if you're a weirdo that's really interested in uh, money and finance the way that I think you you and I are, and you're willing to put in the work uh, to study companies, to understand uh, how they, they operate, uh, to read through SEC filings, to do that kind Kind of stuff i do think there is merit in adding individual stocks uh, to your portfolio if you are willing to do the work now i have been in love with investing for about 20 years now so i actually really enjoy uh researching companies reading through sec filings i would rather listen to a tesla conference call than watch a marvel uh, movie right like that kind of thing is just like what i what i look forward to so that's the reason that i put my capital into individual stocks because i'm willing to do the work uh, to do that. If you're not willing to do the work, no problem. Just buy an index fund and call it a day. Uh, but if you are uh, willing to do the work, a whole uh, whole range of options uh, opens up to you. Uh, the, the What I've discovered about myself, and this is very much a me thing, I'm the type of investor that likes to invest in companies that are in stage three or stage four. They are growing rapidly. They are not yet fully optimized for profit. And when I look at their market cap, I could see that market cap doubling, tripling, quadrupling, 10xing, or even more. Uh, those are the type of companies that most attract me uh, as an investor. Um, so I'm a big fan of diversification. I like to spread my uh, capital out across uh, many, many companies. Um, and occasion doing so means that very often I'm wrong. My analysis is wrong. Uh, I lose money, but that doesn't matter because occasionally I buy the next Tesla. Occasionally I buy the next Netflix. Occasionally I buy the MasterCard. And the gains that you get from investing in those few companies are so huge that they pay for all of the losses of all of my losers combined which by the way, is exactly the same way that the index funds uh, work. It's a minority of companies that drive the vast majority of, of returns. Uh, the thing that, that works so well with index funds is you're guaranteed to get every single mega winner uh, into your portfolio. You're guaranteed to get every single loser uh, in there too. But as long as you are guaranteed to get those mega winners in there, those are the stocks that will drive all of the gains of your portfolio. 
What's hidden uh, from you if you invest in an index fund is all that craziness happens behind one single number that you get from investing in that index fund. If you're going to invest in individual stocks, uh, like the way I do, you see all that craziness uh, firsthand. So you see one company or two companies becoming a dominant portion of your portfolio because their stocks go up and you see all of the losers that you also bought just losing value over time. So my, my investing philosophy is to uh, diversify into as many high quality stocks as I can, uh, hold those stocks voraciously and know that I'm going to be wrong quite often, but I'm occasionally going to be so right that the wrongs, the, the, the losses on the wrongs don't matter. Yeah. What I've heard you say, of course, is important for us to repeat. This is not financial advice because every person is in a very different scenario, different stage of their life, different financial situation. And so there's you would have different advice for different people. Even I have changed my strategy over time, depending on where you're at. I happen to be feeling very confident and I'm ready to go with growth mode. And so I'm kind of uh, putting more money into a growth company, a stable company, not stable stock-wise, but as a business is growing like a Tesla. But, you know, I, I, I like this one. Just, you know, general advice for most people. You're saying this, which is be very conservative on your personal finance, and then you can be a lot more aggressive when you want to take it, uh, if you have investing dollars left over after you've been conservative in finance. So this is just a high-level, pretty good strategy for most people. Uh, tell us uh, what you're thinking there. Yeah, this again is my barbell strategy. This is the, this is the type of investing that works best uh, for, for me. Um, my personal philosophy on my personal finances and my investing are basically polar opposite uh, mindsets. When it comes to personal finance, I am extremely uh, conservative. Uh, when I may say conservative, that means I have zero debt to, to my name. I am completely debt-free. Uh, I have a very high uh, savings rate. A, a significant portion of my income uh, goes towards savings uh, and investing. I have multiple sources of income, and I have long held a six-plus-month emergency uh, fund. So no debt, multiple sources of income, high savings rate, a big uh, emergency fund. My personal finances are about as conservative as you can possibly be. Now, because of that extreme conservatism in my personal finances, that gives me the mental fortitude to essentially be extremely risky, and I put risky in air quotes, uh, with my investment uh, finances. So I currently do not own any bonds, although for the first time ever, I'm actually consider, considering adding bonds to my portfolio, given that interest rates have finally risen to a level that makes uh, that makes uh, sense to invest in them. But historically, I have been 100% stocks uh, with my investment portfolio. That leads my investment portfolio to experience pretty high levels of volatility. I've seen my net worth go up and down drastically, particularly uh, over the last uh, couple of years. However, I know that over the long term, the place that I want my capital to be to compound at the highest rate is in the stock market. And I have a much easier time being 100% stocks because I know that my personal finances are so conservative that I will never be a forced seller of my stock portfolio because of my personal financial life. So if if my wife or I uh, lost our jobs, if we had a big unexpected uh, medical expense uh, come our way, we could handle that with our current personal finances. We would not have to tap our investment finances uh, to pay for those things. So that gives us the mental and uh, the, the mental capacity and the financial capacity to truly invest and hold companies with a long-term mindset. All right. And then um, 
So that's good. Once you feel confident that you've got the basics of uh, being very conservative in your financial savings, you do suggest though, once you've got, you know, the, the finance part uh, taken care of, then you say you do, you do need to invest because this is where you're going to make most of your money is investing. Um, well, let's, let's, let's dive into that a little bit, but there is this one chart that you have that explains um, just again, what we just said, Look, this is just much more detailed on how to make sure you're conservative on your, um, finances. Go ahead and explain what you're saying here. Yeah. So again, I am a big fan of investing. Most people that come across me on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn or YouTube, I uh, know that my personality, I just love uh, investing. And as much as I love investing, uh, I think that investing in the stock market um, is essentially step 13 that you need to, that to be taken care of when it comes to your personal uh, finances. So uh, I would rather have you make sure that you focus on steps one through 12 before you think about making an investment in an individual a stock. And those, and those steps, uh, as you have on the screen here, are a very simple uh, blocking and tackling of personal finances. So step one to me is to make sure you track your expenses. It's never been easier to track where your money is going. And I've yet to meet the person that goes from not tracking their expenses to tracking their expenses and doesn't make a big significant behavioral change, which frees up thousands of dollars of in uh, income for themselves. Uh, once you're tracking your expenses, and you, the next step is to create a net worth and income statement for yourself so you know where you're starting at. And then once you do those two things, I suggest you look through uh, your expenses uh, line by line, one at a time, and ask yourself, am I getting enough value out of this expense uh, to justify uh, my income going towards this? In some cases, the answer will be yes, absolutely. But I guarantee you, you're spending money on things uh, that aren't bringing you the value that you're, you're dedicating towards those. That's a great place to look to eliminate expenses uh, from, from your life, which frees up more money uh, for building wealth and for saving. Uh, from there, it's just a matter of uh, paying off your debt, making sure you're grabbing your 401k match, uh, building out an emergency fund for yourself, uh, taking care of your tax advantage uh, accounts, uh, paying down your non-mortgage debt. And then once all of that stuff is then, then you can start thinking about putting excess capital uh, into the stock market and picking uh, and picking individual stocks uh, if you choose to. But that's just a reminder that you have to take care uh, of the foundational uh, financial steps before you, you care about things like what stock should I pick. Okay. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Good. I like this because now obviously we set the stage uh, being conservative in that thing. Now let's talk about the stock market though, right? So one of the, the books, the book you wrote, <laughs> which is brilliant because nobody talks about it. Why does the stock market go up? And it does go up uh, for a hundred years. And then I, I at, at overlay it on top of that is this reason, you know, reasons to sell over the, uh, what is it, 2009 to 2021. But obviously, if you do it from 1900 <laughs> to 2000, it's the same thing. The stock market has risen for 100 plus years. There's going to be massive recessions or big depressions. But at the end of the day, it continues to go up. I think in general, it, if it goes down for a recession, it might be two years. The worst is five to 10 years. One time it happened that way, but the rest of the time, two to three years, and then boom, we're back to a boom market. So this is exciting. Uh, this is why you need to invest in a stock market, but I love your book. Tell me the book. Why does the stock market go up? 
So, so I, I'm an avid reader. I, I've been reading books about money, personal finance, and investing essentially since I discovered the topic uh, in 2004. Uh, many of the best-selling uh, personal finance and investing books of all time all say the same thing. Uh, put your money into the U.S. stock market. The U.S. stock market delivers a return of about 10% uh, per year. And if there's a big crash, don't worry. The stock market will eventually uh, recover. And they all show that beautiful chart uh, that you just had on the screen. And if you look back historically, when I saw that, I was like, okay, the stock market has gone up historically. The thing that I never understood is why that happens. Uh, it just never made sense to me that there was this thing that just kept going up and everyone told me, well, don't worry, it's just going to keep uh, going up. I like to know the details of things, and I, my, my big question was, well, why? Why has it gone up historically, and why should I have faith that it will continue uh, going up? Uh, as I said, I read dozens of books on the topic. I never found a book that addressed the stock market from that particular angle, and I finally figured, well, maybe I'm supposed to be the person uh, that writes it. Uh, so the, the book is called Why Does a Stock Market Go Up? Uh, it's about 60, 60 short, very short chapters or so that explain one particular area of the stock market in more detail, but the overarching theme uh, of the book is to explain why, what the reasons that the stock market have gone up uh, historically, the growth drivers that have caused that to happen, and should be it should give you confidence that as long as those growth drivers remain in place, the stock market should continue to go up essentially indefinitely. Yeah, and we are in an AI boom, right? So there's the technology keeps growing, uh, just keeps <laughs> just crazy what's happened this year, and it's all converging. So there's always this exponential curve for certain technologies, and they're just converging. So compute power now, the AI boom, everybody's going to be that much more productive. Companies' earnings are starting to show; it'll, it'll show in the next several years. And then, so certain companies will succeed; many others will still fail despite this. But uh, some companies, this is real deal. It's a real productivity hit, just like the internet came and the mobile phones came and so forth, right? And so, um, yeah, just we'll, we'll move back to Tesla um, before we do there. Just tell me this table, which is my philosophy, um, which is if you have a good company with good fundamentals, as we talked about, and the stock will go gyrate up and down, you don't try to time the market, do you? Uh, because I've got friends that I have uh, healthy debates with on a regular basis and some of my friends believe that you can time the market. Uh, certain um, analysts, institutional analysts, they all you know, will buy and then they'll sell because they expect that the next six months is going to be terrible. But another great example was Tesla was the darkest days three months ago. <laughs> After the Q1 earnings, everybody was freaking out. They said the margins were depressed. It'll never turn around for at least a year. They started to sell the stock. And of course, hey, in a matter of a month, Everything turned around. Who could have predicted this? No one can. But there's there's friends of mine who believe that they can time the market, and they've been doing it. They believe. What's your philosophy on that? Uh, so uh, the. I've been investing for about 20, 20 years now, uh, and uh, I've been a c contributor to The Motley Fool uh, for, for about eight years now. Uh, prior to being a contributor to The Motley Fool, um, I followed a very smart analyst at The Motley Fool. His name was uh, Seth Jason, and he I very vividly remember this article that he, he wrote that really had a big impact on me. Uh, he said to me, if you gave me the earnings reports of the companies that I follow one day ahead of time before anybody else saw them, 
I still couldn't predict which way the stock was going to move on the day that the company reports earnings. Uh, I have personally seen companies report what looked like flawless results to me. Uh, they beat on the top line. They beat on the bottom line. They raised guidance for the year. And then their stock falls 20% the next day. I've also seen the exact inverse of that, where a company reports horrible revenue, horrible profits for, for, for the year. They pull guidance and their stock shoots up. Uh, the stock market to me is completely unpredictable uh, in the short term because you're not just measuring what is the news, you're measuring the distance between what is the news and what is the market expecting the news to me. And the expectations for that news is not something that's readily available. Uh, even the published uh, numbers that are out there for analyst reports, those don't necessarily reflect the true feelings of market participants on that particular day. You also can't can't predict, is there going to be some big macro thing that happens this day that cause a general malaise uh, in, in the market? So I personally do not think that you can uh, time uh, time the market. And if you think that you can, I encourage you to Google um, market. There's a, there's a wonderful GIF out there that's a market timing a strategy, and it basically simulates um, stock market uh, history over various periods of time with a random start and a random empty date. And you, you click on there as the market's moving, buy and then sell. And then you tee what happens next uh, with, your, with your trading history. It's actually a wonderful uh, tool. But Looking back historically, I was born in 1982. That just happened to be the very bottom of, of uh, essentially an 18-year uh, bull run that, that happened. And if you look from 1982 to 1995, the stock market had a wonderful 13-year uh, bull run. There were hiccups along the way. There was the flash, the big crash in 1987, for example. But by and large, the returns from 1982-1995 were pretty much up into the right. In 1995 or in 1996, I forget which year it was around there. That's when um, Alan Greenspan, the Federal Reserve Chair at the time, gave his famous uh, "The markets are irrationally exuberant" uh, uh, speech. So this was a guy with his finger on the pulse of the economy, literally in control of interest rates, saying the market market is essentially overheated in 1995 or 1996. What happened next? How could you see that information and not say to yourself, the market is overvalued. I'm getting out now. I'm going to pull my money from it. And if you did that, what happened in 1997? 20% gain in the S&P 500. I don't know the exact number. It's somewhere around that. So the market was overvalued, according to the head of Federal Reserve in 1996, 1985, and then it went up 20%. What do you think now? I would think market's crazy overvalued, right? Definitely don't want to buy in. What happened in 1998? Market went up. What happened in 1999? Market went up again. So if the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who literally controls interest rates, essentially has a poor track record of picking uh, the trying to time the market, what chance do I have? as an individual uh, investors. So I don't even try uh, to, to time the market. I understand though, why it's so tempting to do so. Because if you can time the market uh, successfully, you can make an incredible amount of money. But what you're actually doing when you're timing the market is you're timing and predicting human emotions en masse. That's what you're trying to do. If you think that you can predict the, ma the mass emotions of humans, all investors, one day from now, one week from now, one, one year from now, you think you can do that successfully, I would say good luck to you.
Yeah, the problem is you can't even control your own emotions and yeah. your investments based on emotions. Uh, this what's my what's slide, my what's my emotion going to be in two hours? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, what's going to happen is... to me two two hours from now? I don't know. Like how if so I what... can't predict my own emotions two hours from now, <laughs> how am I going to predict the emotions of the market? <laughs> I guess what I've learned uh, just talking to different people with different investing styles is different people have different um, kind of makeup, emotional makeup, right? So my friend is very fear-driven. And if he loses money, it's very, very painful for that person. Versus for me, uh, if I lose money, I'm I'm like, shrug it off. Oh, well. And then I'm much more optimistic about things because I see things always rising and I, I can prove it. Whatever I decide to prove, I will be able to prove with stats and data. And if I know that a company is very fundamentally strong, I can hold on when it goes down because I know that the company is fundamentally strong. This will just be a blip. It'll bounce back and in fact, skyrocket. And more often than not, if I know the company is strong, it proves me out. So I'm very comfortable managing risk, but a lot of people are not. So... <clears throat> And uh, obviously with Tesla, I want to get back to Tesla now. Let's go do a deep dive in Tesla, how you value it, how you look at it. 2022 was a killer year, even for me. <laughs> I don't know. I was, you know, like, because oh, it went from 300 something all the way down to 100. This was, wow, how is it possible that the stock can be valued at 100? Some people are going, it's going to fall to 70. It was just how is that possible when the company has multiple factories, gigafactories, everything is looking great fundamentally milestone wise and so this this table that you showed here which is great investors who say that they can handle volatility in bull markets <laughs> almost all of us yeah i could handle volatility but when it becomes a bear <laughs> it's like sell i can't handle volatility at this point mm -hmm. so how do you yeah. how do you manage your own emotions yeah so saying you can handle volatility uh when things are going up and everything's going well uh, is one thing actually being able to handle volatility when it seems like everything uh, is going to hell and you see your net worth uh, in free fall. Those are two completely uh, different things. Uh, the famed uh, investment writer Jason Zweig has a wonderful uh, analogy at that that I'm about to uh, rip off, but he basically says, imagine showing somebody, uh, saying, so what's your, your risk tolerance? And showing them a picture of a snake and being like, are you scared? And they'd be like, no, I, I can handle this. And then going and taking an actual live snake and throwing it on their lap and saying, how do you feel now? That is the difference between volatility in theory and volatility uh, in, in reality. Uh, but the way that I handle it um, is, is a couple ways. We already covered the big one, which is my my financial life is in no way, my, my, my actual day-to-day -day life is in no way threatened by what happens to Tesla stock tomorrow. None. Tesla stock could fall 90% uh, tomorrow, and I would not feel good about that, but it would change absolutely nothing about my day-to-day -day life. That's thing one. Uh, thing two, I've studied Tesla in depth. I, I have a tremendous amount of knowledge and, and, and uh, of how uh, Tesla works. I've seen its trading history and I've owned its stock for more than a decade. So day-to-day -day gyrations at this point to me, I'm, I'm immune to them because I've, been, I've, I've seen so many companies that I own fall drastically in short periods of time. And it's like anything. The first time that it happens to you, it's scary. You don't know what's going on. The 900th time it's happened to you, you kind of shake it off like well that's just that's just how it goes yes it, it, 
Exactly. Um, and but the thing that I do is I always try and focus on the business. The business. If I see a stock falling and I have nervous uh, feelings about that, I pull up the last earnings report and I read through it. And I say, what happened to revenue? What happened to margins? What happened to profits? How's the balance sheet looking? Are new products uh, com coming along? That's what I focus on. Uh, I let the numbers and the that I let the numbers do the talking. The earnings reports that company produce that is signal. The stock price commentary on CNBC uh, thing tweets that is noise. The unfortunate thing is the ratio of signal to noise has just gotten worse. And it wasn't all that great 10 years ago. So with Tesla in particular, Tesla is probably the noisiest stock I've ever seen, ever, right? Uh, you, you, if you have any thesis in your mind about Tesla, uh, you can back it up by looking at what market commentary and it'll support whatever thesis you want to assume for yourself. To me, that's all just noise. I focus on the long-term performance of Tesla's financial statements. And when I do, I have nothing but a big smile on my face. <laughs> I have a big smile on my face too. Okay. So let's go into Tesla um, analysis. And just to be clear, I you had a video that you did on YouTube and you deep dive into Tesla. You are a big bull, Tesla bull. You are not selling Tesla stock. It is your highest holding. But at the same time, when you looked at the data, I saw that uh, that every metric Tesla is doing incredibly well. Green, 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 green. It passes your, uh, yeah, you had this one way to evaluate whether a company's, I can't remember, what are the two things you call? One is like, is health and then the other one is this risk or something like that i can't remember you know what i'm talking about okay. um talk about this my quality score you have a scorecard you have a scorecard mm -hmm. yeah my checklist so uh, yeah so everything with tesla was green 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 everywhere but when you actually deep dive into is it valuation priced high you did find that price of sales pre-e whether it's uh whether it's a uh, forward or uh trailing it all were high if you look at it as a car company. So let's mm -hmm. dive into that and show me kind of the data. I do have this table that you put together. Tell me what you're doing here. Uh, so there are multiple ways to value Tesla at, the, at this point. You can do multiple uh, analysis. Uh, you could do a DCF analysis if you want to. Uh, I think uh, I, I'm a fan of a tool called a reverse uh, discounted cash flow analysis. Uh, what you're doing with a reverse discounted uh, cash flow analysis is you're entering just a few known metrics and you're taking the current price of the stock and you are asking yourself how much... how what kind of growth is priced into a Tesla stock based on the data that we have uh, today. Now, this data is a little bit old uh, that, you're, that you're showing on the screen. Tesla stock at the time was about $291 per share. It's currently about $250 uh, per share. So that would reduce the assumptions uh, built in a little bit. But basically what you do is uh, this is a free tool anyone can download. Um, and you just put in the stock timber. You put in the trailing 12-month free cash flow. You make some assumptions about the terminal growth rate of the business, so the long-term growth rate of the business past year 10. I chose 3%. That's about the GDP growth of the United States. Uh, and then you put in a discount rate, so the required rate of return that you have and as an investor, I put in a 10% uh, discount rate. Now, at the time that the earnings came out on the company, the stock was trading at 291, and that price implied that Tesla was going to grow its free cash flow by about 35% uh, per year 
together over the next 10 years. And if they could do so successfully, you, the investor, would earn a 10% return. If you want a higher than 10% return, then the company would have to grow faster than 35% compound annual growth rate. Now, that number is different today because Tesla stock has knocked about $50 off it. So perhaps the, the number, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the assumed growth rate would be closer to 30% instead of 35%, but still a very high number. And to me, there's no doubt that built into those assumptions is the assumption that FSD, the FSD program will be a, a resounding uh, success. Uh, full self-driving uh, to me is like a, a, a magic Trojan horse uh, for this company that if it works, it could just unlock gobs of free cash flow and it could significantly uh, grow uh, Tesla's uh, free cash flow uh, over the next three, five, uh, 10 years. Um, this, that also could could perhaps be baking in the fact that Optimus, the Optimus program, is going to work. And again, what is the what is the potential of, of that uh, business? It's hard to throw. It's hard to throw a number on it. Uh, but make no mistake. At even $250 per share, uh, the market is giving uh, Tesla credit for a tremendous amount of growth in its free cash flow over the next 10 years. If the company fails to deliver on those high expectations, Look out below. The stock is going to get absolutely whacked uh, from uh, today. Uh, if the company meets or exceeds those expectations, then Tesla's shareholders are going to have a big smile on their face uh, five and 10 years uh, from now. Uh, now, Tesla is my largest holding. It's about 9% of my personal portfolio. So I'm, I, I believe that Tesla will meet or perhaps even exceed uh, those expectations over the next 10 years. But make no mistakes, that's a big assumption. Yeah, it's a big assumption. But again, I need to point out that this is based on current situation, which is 90% plus uh, auto, 35% growth rate per year. Very comfortable that they're going to hit that because we are at the early stages of this massive transition to electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got four gigafactories. They're building more. Every car they they make will sell. There's going to be gyrations, of course, with demand if 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 interest rates are high. But if we do head to a boom market, even for a few of those years, it's going to come up. And at the average of 50%, they still reiterated their goal of 50% growth. They still said they're going to hit 1.8 million of cars this year, despite it being the highest interest rates, the highest <laughs> concern for macro. This is kind of like the worst possible year. Um, and, and yet they're still growing 50%, you know, maybe under 50%, but it's there. And then this does not take into consideration energy, robots, FSD, uh, and then who's to say that they, they're an innovation machine. <clears throat> they execute, as you will say, you know that this company executes, like I think you and I might agree that there is no other company that has ex executed as be better than Tesla has in the last 13, 20 years that they're alive. They've hit every mark. They might be a little late in certain pr predictions, but they hit it and they're just growing and they're an innovation machine. So who's to say that they're not going to add yet a new business three years from now and yet a new business, you know, a year later? Um, you know what I mean? Like you're you're betting on <clears throat> the fact that this company is stable financially and there's innovation. So I yeah. just want to point that out because, you know, you this this comment here about 35% growth rate with the $6 billion cash flow and then you're mapping it forward, it really is mostly on auto, which is still very good.
you'll still get your 10%. So, so, so Tesla has the Tesla has probably the most, uh, optionality I've ever seen in any business, uh, ever optionality to me is the ability of a company to roll out new products or new services that open up new market opportunities and drive needle moving revenue growth, uh, for, for the company. When I first purchased Tesla, the company had the model S and the roadster. That was it. That was the company. That was the thing that I was buying. And look at all the products and services that I've introduced to the market since then. I didn't know in 2012 that when I was buying Tesla stock that I was going to be also buying Tesla Energy that was going to be introduced, what, five years later? I didn't know I was also going to be buying Solar City uh, that they, they bought, what, six years later? I didn't know that I was going to be buying the early stages of Optimus uh, 10 year, years later. So Tesla is a great example of of optionality done the right way. And it, that is just built into Elon's DNA. He has ideas, uh, he devotes resources to them. I mean, we don't, we don't even know about the future of, for example, home energy uh, eating, right? Their, their heat pump, they, they've already hinted at multiple times that they're gonna be sending their, their heat pump uh, in, in houses and in, in residential. What about Tesla insurance, right? These are all businesses that didn't exist a few years ago, but now as a Tesla shareholder, you get added uh, to the mix. And if you look back at some of the most successful companies over the last 10 years, um, Amazon, uh, for example, uh, Amazon has spawned lots of, of, of new businesses. Many of them have failed, but that doesn't matter because they launched AWS, what, 16, uh, 17 years ago at that point, And that has added tremendous uh, shareholder uh, value. Apple, uh, 15 years ago, launched the iPhone. You did, I, I didn't know that the iPad uh, was coming or the Apple Watch was coming or now the, uh, the what's it called, the Vision Pro or whatever it is. Those are brand new businesses uh, that the company spun up to, to its shareholders. That is called optionality. And I've never seen a company have more optionality in it than Tesla does. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for that. So going back to this table, because I love it so much. Um, you know, we, we've agreed that the auto business is somewhere in here, operating leverage, and it could be early or late. But we also agreed that there's multiple businesses. Robots are in startup. Energy is probably in self-funding area. Um, and uh, FSD, that's a little bit of a startup. Hyper if it works, it's going to go crazy. If it doesn't mm -hmm. work, then it's nothing. I agree that that one is weird. And then there's even a potential that if the auto business keeps growing like it is in a few years, they might do capital return, right? Stock buybacks. And that's the reason why uh, Apple stock has just continued to grow in the last 10 years is the massive stock buyback because of the cash that they get from the high margin services that they transition the company to. And that's very much a possibility because, I mean, it's just uh, Tesla's cash return is just, it's going to be crazy if you watch the auto business keep going up and their margins um, stabilizing and continue to go up. So just just a quick last statement on this, um, you know, Tesla being where it is now, what's your, oh, I love your comment too. Please tell us your quote about the Hubble, uh, you know, this concept of looking at these things, looking at this kind of cash flow and all these fancy metrics. Uh, but at the end of the day, you got to just remind yourself about the business, the fundamentals, and, and think about the company. Yeah, tell me about that, that quote. I just love that. 
Yeah, it's a quote specifically about the DCF models. When it comes to, to, to valuation, um, uh, the Charlie Munger quote you uh, had before really rings true to me. It's very easy to get really gimmicky uh, when it comes to, to valuation and to use highly complex uh, models and really forecast out uh, to the tenth of a percent uh, what the revenue, the tax rate, all that kind of stuff is going to be into the future. I recently came across by a guy named Curtis uh, Jensen, uh, and he was specifically talking about a DCF models and a flaw in DCF. DCF models. And the quote is, a DCF is like a Hubble telescope. Turn it a fraction of an inch and you're in an entirely different galaxy. Uh, I just just love that. And that's so true uh, with, with DCF models. When you're making forward assumptions, the discount rate that you have really matters. The growth rate that you have really matters. And they can give you a wide range of valuation numbers uh, that are out there. So when it comes to, to valuation, I do my best to make as educated as a guess as I can, but I try to keep my analysis as simple as possible, knowing that predicting the future is incredibly hard. Love it. Okay. So let's uh, get back to the high level thinking. Uh, tell me what um, I'm going to ask you to predict, <laughs> which I know you won't do, but tell me about the economy. Are we headed to a boom market? Um, how are you feeling about the future for the next six months, next years for Tesla? How I'm feeling about it is just that it's it's a feeling. What's going to actually happen? I have no clue, um, right? So so my, my my feeling. I mean, if you went if you would ask me that question six months ago, I probably would have said like the same thing that every major economist was was saying. The U.S. is going to enter a recession. Look out uh, below, right? And again, that shows you how hard market timing was. If you went back six months ago, but it, it was just in March of this year that we had Silicon Valley Bank fail. We saw we saw banks failing. It looked like two thousand all over uh, again. And what was the right thing to do at that time? Buy. But buy was the right thing uh, to do. So I have no clue what's going to happen with the economy three months from now or six months ago, because I'll ask you this question. What's going to happen next in the Ukraine-Russian war? I don't know. Is it going to de-escalate? Is it going to escalate? I don't know. Uh, if it, How is the market going to react if it escalates or de-escalate? I don't know. So I don't even try and make predictions about what's going to happen with the economy. Uh, that, that to me is, is, is irrelevant. I am a firm believer that there are multiple uh, technologies happening in the world right now, and that five years from now and 10 years from now, the world will be in a better place than it is today. And it's highly likely that my portfolio will be a better place uh, five and 10 years than it is today. But the path that it it takes to get there is a complete wild guess. Okay. And then uh, comment on Tesla, uh, just the future of Tesla, where you might, uh, what you're expecting, what you might be um, hoping for. How do you feel about Tesla? You got me there. You caught me there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I feel I feel very good. It's my it's my number one holding. It's grown to become my number one holding uh, for a reason. In my opinion, this is just my opinion. I think the next ten years for Tesla are going to mimic the last ten years that we've seen uh, for Apple. There certainly could be long periods of time when the business and the stock uh, diverge uh, gr greatly. But now that the company is generating a uh, free cash flow over the next couple of years, we should see the Cybertruck come online. We should see the Robo Taxi come online. We should see continued growth in the auto business and the energy business, which is finally producing positive gross profits. I think if Elon does the right thing with the company's capital, the excess capital, he could start to fund that into to stock buybacks. I would prefer them to use that to continue to fund initiatives that they have in place and grow and grow organically. But um, from what I see right, right now, I think that the next 10 years for Tesla shareholders are going to be very, very pleasant. Okay, wonderful. But Thank I reserve so the right to be wrong and change my mind. Of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This was not financial advice. Um, and but you should follow 
Brian, um, I absolutely love, I'm a big, big giant fan of yours. That's why I was like, I'm trying to find which one to show. And there's so many of these nuggets of wisdom that you're sharing. Uh, thank you for that. Follow Brian. Uh, he has, he has 70,000 people on his newsletter, which is, I've been one for a long time. And every Wednesday, I think you, you spit out something that's just brilliant. Again, follow him on Twitter under the uh, handle Brian Feroldi. And the website is brianferoldi.com. And of course, he's got his YouTube channel as well, Brian Feroldi FT or YT. And he covers not just Tesla. He does a lot of different kinds of companies and you'll learn something new. So thank you, Brian. That was enjoyable. You are amazing. Got to buy your book and uh, teach my daughters a lot of the stuff because, right, nobody's taught this and we're all stumbling along. And then you bring it to be accessible. What's well, your mission? Um, yeah, your mission is to my, demystify my, finance. Demystify oh, you finance, yep. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It was great, great to be here.